Hi, my name is Knoll, and welcome to the Geeks of the Valley podcast, which connects with some of the brightest minds globally who are leading their respective industries today to discuss the hottest upcoming industry trends and how their work is affecting the global economy. This morning, from the Taipei, Taiwan area, we have a very special guest joining us, who is ex-Google, ex-Ripple, has worked with multiple US and Taiwan think tanks, and was the co-founder and CEO of Formosa Financial. He is an entrepreneur who grew up in Silicon Valley and has spent the last 10 years building cross-border businesses between Asia and the US. Please welcome Ryan Terbellini. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. And how are things with you in light of COVID? Uh, well, in Taiwan, things are quite safe, you know, as you might have seen uh, based on some news reports that Taiwan has one of the best coronavirus uh, responses in the world. You know, the cases are under 500, only had a small handful of deaths. So, um, and they have never really gone into a full lockdown. So really an impressive success story over there, especially considering Taiwan is not a member of the World Health Organization or even an observer. Ryan, I'm happy to hear that. Very good. And Let's, how about you? Are, are you are you doing okay on your end? I mean, this, the U.S. is looking a bit scarier than than the perspective from Asia regarding COVID. Yeah, you know, here in the U.S., uh, we we've taken certain measures, uh, and those you know, measures have all failed. No measures. To, to some extent, to some extent, they have right, and I think um, Asia has just been uh, really on top of it when it comes to. Uh, ensuring that uh, people are really staying six to 12 feet apart, right? They're wearing their masks and uh, they've made it uh, mandatory, right? Um, and so it's, it's really benefited the whole population. Um, in the U.S., though, as, as you know, it's, it's a bit of a, a different story. Um, but every state is kind of doing what they can to the best of their ability to curb this and, 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 and lower the COVID cases. Well, I, I joke with my family in California because, uh, you know, people don't really abide by mask wearing there, but there's so many wildfires now that the only thing that forced people to wear masks is breathing in smoke. So that's a, COVID. COVID won't make people wear masks, but wildfires will, I guess. I guess that's the moral of the story. <laughs> um, no, I, I feel you. And um, let's, uh, let's jump into the first question here, shall we? Sure. So, so tell me about yourself and, and your background and how it led you to the path of building cross-border businesses between Taiwan and the U.S. Okay. and uh, you know, yeah. now Singapore. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I've always had a kind of outward-looking perspective. I guess that's kind of a, a byproduct of growing up in California, where it's a very multicultural, diverse part of the United States. Um, yeah, so I grew up in Menlo Park, which is just, uh, you know, basically short right away from Silicon Valley, right next to Stanford University, which kind of incubated a lot of the big uh, tech companies and names that we know, not just the, the modern ones like the Googles of the world, but actually before that, when Silicon Valley's uh, namesake actually came from the fact that you had uh, semiconductor companies and, and fab, fab units over there. Uh, so that was kind of an interesting environment to grow up in because... You know, like when you're like a fish, you're like a goldfish in a bowl, you don't really know that there's a bigger ocean out there. Uh, so you kind of take it for granted. But then as you grow up and you see uh, how the rest of the world kind of looks to the technology or is shaped by that technology, uh, you realize how unique it is to grow up in a place where that technology was actually developed. Um, 
So yeah, when I was a kid, I used to go to the movie theater next to the Google campus in Mountain View. Uh, that's when Google was just a small kind of startup that it was maybe on the course of going public. I uh, never thought I would end up working there one day, but it was uh, kind of interesting to see their expansion of the campus kind of uh, move further and further out towards where the movie theater was over on uh, Shoreline Boulevard in Mountain View. If anybody, anybody on your, if any of your listeners have ever been there, they'll know what I'm talking about. So um, that was my kind of childhood upbringing. Uh, and then fast forward to graduating from college. So I actually graduated from Berkeley in 2008, which, uh, you know, is uh, the previous big financial crisis and recession faced by the United States. So that was difficult timing. Um, I was able to get an internship at a, at a startup in San Francisco focused on fantasy sports which has always been a passion of mine. So that was a pretty cool thing to do early on. So it was building, uh, building fantasy sports applications on the Facebook platform. So that was when Facebook had just opened up its developer APIs. And then uh, after that, I was like, right after that, Google lifted its hiring freeze. And then I worked at Google for four years on Android related stuff. So my first team at Google was actually doing the, uh, you know, go to market operations for selling the Nexus One which was Google's first hardware device. So like Google was really previously only in the business of web search and software. Uh, and that was the first time that Google had a foray into actually selling a physical device, uh, which was called the Nexus One. Uh, so I did that for a few years. And then within Google, I actually uh, transferred teams, but still focused on Android. Uh, went to a team focused on Google Play, which actually at that time was known as Android Market. So that, they had a whole rebrand there. Um, and this is when, you know, more and more developers around the world were starting to bring applications onto Android. So that was a really fast growing business. We had a very small and agile team. Uh, that team had uh, Asian operations, both in terms of engineering support and some of the local market experts out of Taipei. So uh, in 2012, I created a kind of exchange ambassador program where I got to go to Taipei for three months. And one of the teammates from Taipei went to the Mountain View headquarters. So that was my first familiarity with Taiwan. Wow, Ryan, uh, what a background. Um, you know, you've been in the Valley, right? Creating cross-border businesses between the Valley and, and Asia Pacific, right? In general. Mm. Um, comes to the Silicon Valley view of how a founder should follow certain metrics in order to grow their company. Are there any misconceptions or surrounding thoughts about how this should be done? Well, uh, yeah, I think... Um... I would say growing up in the Valley and that culture and then seeing how startups operate there, I think there are some cultural biases or assumptions that you might carry over to other parts of the world that don't hold true. Uh, and I think the primary reason for that, to give an example, is, uh, you know, this kind of obsession with being a unicorn startup in the Valley. You know, everybody's aiming for that big funding round that values their company at a billion dollars or above, um, you know, unless you have positive unit economics or some sort of path towards profitability, that's just a, you know, that's more of an art than a science when a VC gives you that type of valuation because they're betting on a uncertain future, right? And then they're trying to sell that idea of an uncertain future to other potential VC investors so that their, you know, equity value is locked in at a good price, right? So I'd say like the problem with the value evaluation metrics are mostly that it's focused on artificial valuations, which are just kind of a finger to the wind rather than like actual profitability or is the business model better or like where is the actual value created through whatever is, is generated 
in the like in the startup itself. Uh, so I'd say that's quite different from Asia in some way. I think Asia is much more focused on unit economics and um, you know efficient user acquisition, growth 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 patterns, uh, go to market strategies and stuff like that. So yeah, I think uh, the Valley could actually benefit from maybe looking more towards the fundamentals of a business and then figuring it out as they go rather than just like focusing on the headline numbers. And, and, and moving over to the research you've kind of conducted uh, these past few years, um, right? A couple of years ago, you were in India from, from what I understand, where you did research on the demonetization and digitization of the Indian economy. How is the digital payment realm helping these underserved second and third world countries? And what massive trends or changes are you seeing in the industry overall? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, digital payments and fintech is, you know, on a big upswing. And I think, uh, you know, I got to give credit to China and what happened with, uh, you know, Weixi, WeChat and Alipay and how that's really uh, built a lot of awareness around digital payment methods over the last uh, 10 to 15 years. So, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, it's not just uh, financial inclusion, actually. So I think a lot of people think, um, you know, the key to financial inclusion is more people getting bank accounts or something like that. But actually a big barrier to access is also lack of internet access in general. So uh, you can't really use a mobile app to pay for things or, or manage digital payment methods if you don't even have reliable internet access. So I think it's a two-pronged thing. I think in a lot of uh, developing countries, the exciting part is that they can leapfrog from like what would be a legacy system in the U.S., to uh, just the modern payment system, which will probably be both based on some combination of, of uh, a payment card and then maybe some sort of mobile wallet. So uh, to be able to do that is all enabled by access to the internet. And that's, you know, a larger kind of market picture, but you know, you need good telcos offering cheap and efficient service to a large swath of the population. So I think India in many ways is kind of the perfect storm of that because there's more and more internet access in India, and then some of the regulations have changed such that even telcos can act as depository banks in India. So just like you would buy minutes uh, for cell service from say Airtel, uh, you can also then deposit those rupees to your Airtel account as a form of mobile money. So basically if you have access to the internet, you can also have access to financial services through that type of scheme. So uh, I think that's why you know digital payments is picking up in a big way in India. Uh, is mostly through some of those regulatory changes, but also access to broadband services. Um, and then the other aspect that I'd add to that is that there are payment rails that are created as a consortium of banks. So rather than having, um, say, just one independent entity like a PayPal uh, control most of the digital payment method, you actually have a kind of bank-owned uh, payment system, which is interoperable amongst all the banks and settles in real time. So having that kind of shared infrastructure or a common good for payments, I think is very, very beneficial so that you don't have one entity or one startup bearing the cost of maintaining their payment systems. So Ryan, despite this trip to India and the research you did, you know, while doing this, you had finished your MPP at Oxford, right? And after this, your areas of focus turned out to be in public and private blockchains, uh, payment systems and financial technology policy and regulation. With all these focuses considered, uh, there was a recent research paper you had published as part of the Global Taiwanese Institute, where you spoke about Taiwan's democratization through an open political marketplace in the future. Could you kind of just talk about that first? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, actually, I'll, I'll kind of start at the beginning and how I embarked on the research. So as part of my MPP at Oxford, uh, one of my elective courses was taught by a wonderful professor named Dr. Emily Jones. Uh, she is a specialist on international trade and economic governance. Uh, so her course is called International Economic Relations of Governments. And a big focus of the class is basically how every government needs kind of a go-to-market strategy for economic development, whether that's, um, you know, through being a fully kind of domestic market where you have domestic growth and you focus on internal, internal market development, or if that means you have some sort of uh, factor endowments that allow you to take advantage of a global marketplace and be an export-led economy. Uh, so I, I found these kind of questions and thoughts fascinating. And then we did some case studies on different economies, the ones that you would never think about, ones like Mauritius. Uh, so just like very random countries and how they actually, you know, gain a foothold in the global economy. Uh, so Taiwan being near and dear to my heart, having worked there and spent time there, um, I thought, you know, I really want to kind of take some of these concepts and apply them and get a better understanding for myself of how Taiwan has come to be uh, in the 21st century. So uh, to do so, I, I'm a big fan of this, uh, the research work put out by the Global Taiwan Institute, which is a US-Taiwan policy think tank in Washington, DC. Uh, so I submitted a research proposal to them and was granted a fellowship uh, for kind of exploring the question of how Taiwan's economic development and Policymaking has kind of changed course uh, now that Taiwan has fully democratized from the 1990s onward versus before when Taiwan had massive economic growth, you know, kind of exploded uh, for 15 years from the 70s into the late 80s, uh, how that process was actually facilitated by Taiwan as a one party state where the KMT basically dictated all the kind of export terms, access to credit, things like that, that helped the semiconductor and IT industry really take off and make Taiwan a global leader. So yeah, that process was very interesting. And uh, yeah, Taiwan is a bit of, at a bit of an economic crossroad, not just on which industry to focus its efforts on and which uh, industry to kind of commit government resources to, but also uh, which way it orients itself towards trade partners because uh, over the last 20 years as China has grown, uh, Taiwan has become more and more dependent on exports to China, but obviously that presents somewhat of a, a political risk to Taiwan's existence because uh, obviously China claims Taiwan to be uh, part of its territory, whereas you know the majority of Taiwanese would disagree and want to maintain the sovereignty of their nation. So uh, yeah, it's a very interesting balancing act that uh, policymakers have in Taiwan, and uh, you know it's a very it's a more competitive global marketplace than when Taiwan first broke in uh, 30 years ago, 30 40 years ago to the semiconductor industry. So. They kind of have to uh, figure out where they're competitive now and then start moving in that direction. Uh, can you dive more into detail on why you believe Taiwan could be moving this course and how the country's economic, political, and legislative policymaking environment could be affected by these moves? Absolutely. So, yeah, I think it's maybe I touched on it briefly in my last answer, but uh, it's kind of helpful to understand generally what Taiwan's political evolution has been before you see how it would change the economy. So uh, traditionally, you know, basically the Republic, Taiwan's official constitutional name is the Republic of China. And the reason for that is because uh, after the Chinese Civil War, uh, post-World War II, uh, the KMT or the nationalists led by General Chiang Kai-shek, uh, they lost the majority of their territory in mainland China and fled to Taiwan. Uh, you know, and we're stuck on Taiwan from 1949 onwards. 
So this created a circumstance where, you know, there are two governments claiming to be the legitimate government of China. Uh, there's one in the mainland, the People's Republic of China based in Beijing, uh, led by the Communist Party. And then there's the Nationalist Party of the KMT uh, based out of Taipei, Taiwan. Uh, but, you know, what's happened over, this is, you know, back in the 1940s, 1950s, and over the generations, what's changed is the consciousness and political identity of people in Taiwan. So even though the country is still formally called the Republic of China, uh, the people in Taiwan who actually feel like they're Chinese has declined gradually over time, just as a factor of the fact that lots of Taiwanese have never even been to China. Uh, and the ones that have been to China feel like a different cultural identity from there. So that kind of uh, manifested itself beginning in the mid 80s. I mean, it had been the case before, but uh, basically this Chinese identity was imposed by the KMT and the one party state. As people, uh, you know, as the economy developed, uh, that kind of led to, you know, labor unions and some forms of political organization as people's standard of living increased that led them to be more willing to exercise uh, freedom of speech and political rights. So in 1986, uh, opposition party was founded called the Democratic Progressive Party. This party happens to be the party that has the majority in Taiwan's legislature today and also holds the presidency. Uh, President Tsai Ing-wen won her second term in January of this year in a landslide election. Uh, so basically from the, pro from the period of the party's founding in 1986 uh, all the way today in 2020, you see that uh, you know, this kind of idea of Taiwanese identity has taken hold to the point that it actually is the controlling party uh, in the Republic of China. Uh, so with that in mind, it's like you can see that there's a, a bit of an identity and history difference between the two parties, between the KMT and the DPP. And uh, as you can imagine, with the KMT's more Chinese-oriented identity, uh, traditionally they have been very favorable to trying to work with China on economic development in many ways. Uh, because, you know, they still believe in the concept of potential reunification with China at some point. It's just un unclear under what type of terms. Uh, so as such, you know, there's been a lot of economic dependence on exports to China, whereas uh, the DPP would more focus to prefer on trading partners in Southeast Asia, because that's a fast growing population. And then that makes them less dependent on China. Uh, and also because of the fact that Beijing regards the DPP with a deep amount of suspicion, so they don't really maintain any uh, formal ties or relations with the current government in Taiwan that would enable them to do deeper business together. Um, so that all leads to, you know, which industry would be a good target export market? And then, you know, how do you actually develop policies and programs to facilitate development of certain industries so that you can actually find markets for whatever products you decide to develop? Uh, so under Thai, that's, that's kind of manifested itself in the form of a policy called New Southbound Policy. Uh, so the idea is to create new trade links with Malaysia, Vietnam, Philippines, India, uh, Indonesia. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the focus and it's, it's beginning to take root. She started it early in her first term and now I think now that it's getting on and especially with the uh, implications of the US-China trade war, there's definitely uh, more interest in finding new trading partners and Taiwan is a pretty attractive one for a lot of those countries. Knowing that we just touched on, you know, democratization and digitization, what major blockchain projects are you seeing in Asia today, which are working on or already contributing to the democratization or digitization of a certain economy? Uh, yeah, so I think there's a number of, of projects you could point to. I mean, I was just reading some research 
uh, about how central banks all over the world, and uh, particularly those in Asia, are actually assessing the benefits of using a blockchain system for issuance of a central bank digital currency. Uh, so that could create some very interesting implications because you think about how today the vast majority of economies and financial systems are intermediated by commercial banks who hold deposits on behalf of customers. Uh, if we're living in a world where everybody has their own digital wallet and uh, you know, you're holding cash issued by the central bank in that digital wallet, uh, it becomes less and less clear what the role or importance of a commercial bank would be in such a system. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of ongoing research there into how that would look and what the risks would be. Um, I think an interesting way on the, you know, less regulated side of things and how that's taking root is in what's going on with decentralized finance or DeFi. Uh, so you see uh, projects that basically create algorithmic money markets, uh, compound finance being probably the first and best example. And now it's taken the form in a number of meme coins out here out of Asia. There's a lot of people that are copying the concept and uh, putting a new spin on it. But uh, this idea of, you know, crypto markets being heavily speculative, but uh, at the same time, people want to lend and borrow at some sort of interest. And then the idea of being able to dynamically set the interest rate based on available supply and demand uh, at the market conditions at any one time is actually taking, catching on quite easily. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting space to observe just because it's so different from how conventional finance works where you basically uh, you know, go to a bank to take out a loan and then they kind of decide if you're credit worthy uh, after assessing your income, things like that, versus if you just have crypto in a wallet and then you want to earn interest on it, you can just put it into one of these staking pools and voila, you start earning interest. So uh, yeah, I think it's super interesting to kind of see what's happening just with the kind of market, larger market in a permissionless way, just how people innovate and what types of things are being created. And then see how, uh, you know, the traditional financial system and institutions kind of observe what is happening there and then decide which parts of it are useful for, uh, you know, creating a more mainstream but digitized economy. And then uh, taking the, the good parts out of that and then hopefully uh, not sticking with any of the bad parts or casting those aside. So yeah, it's, uh, it's happening all pretty quickly, I would say. I mean, when I started working at Ripple back 2013, 2014, uh, you know, no government or financial institution that we were talking to back then had really heard of blockchain. Most people, when they were thinking about blockchain, just knew it from Bitcoin. And if they knew it from Bitcoin, they just knew it was money, on, money for the dark web for buying drugs or something. They weren't thinking of it like, oh, the blockchain is infrastructure that we can actually uh, create applications on top of or that we can, you know, issue new forms of value on top of. So uh, it's been pretty fascinating just in, you know, six, seven years to see that whole evolution of thinking from basically no awareness back then to actual evaluation and having, um, you know, dedicated working groups focusing on different technology implementations and different types of use cases for blockchain in their payment systems. So yeah, quite, quite a change. Truly well said, Ryan. Now I want to take a transition into uh, life advice and uh, career choices uh, for the last couple of questions of the call here. How did you think through your career choices in life? Hmm. Yeah, I, I honestly, I, I'm a big believer in uh, intellectual curiosity. So I think I really 
don't have like a, a master plan for my career. Instead, I just tend to gravitate towards stuff I find interesting. Uh, and, you know, I think general piece of advice is that, you know, if you actually have an intellectual passion or, or interest in a subject, you'll be much more successful in uh, accomplishing things uh, around that if you actually, you know, are motivated to learn about it in a deep way. So uh, I think if you can find areas that, you know, are deeply interesting to you, then you'll have no problem kind of breaking in because people will sense your passion and sense that you want to understand more. And that will just facilitate better connections and better job opportunities for you uh, versus trying to just uh, play the part of saying, I want to be X or I want to be Y. And then you don't actually uh, aren't, aren't actually as interested in the subject, then you're probably not going to be as successful in that field. So my general advice is just do what is interesting to you. I, I guess to further add on to that, right, um, there was a point in your career that you decided to, hey, I'm going to drop everything, move to Taiwan, learn Mandarin for a year. Uh, yeah. you know, no matter the risk. So, so why make that decision? Um, especially, you know, what, you know, being ex Google and ex Ripple and working some fantastic jobs in the Valley. Uh, so part of it's personal reasons and part of it is kind of just, uh, human development reasons. So I'd say on the personal side, uh, having grown up in the Bay area and gone to college in the Bay area and worked in the Bay area, I just was ready for a change. So, you know, I was in my mid 20, mid to late twenties. And uh, really, I think San Francisco is a highly overrated city. I don't know why people, <laughs> other, other than the high paying jobs and the, uh, if you're working at a good company, I understand it. But really, it's just uh, for what you get, it's a pretty bad city, I'd say, generally. Uh, it's just very expensive, very bad transportation options, and uh, not particularly convenient in terms of what's available there. So I wanted to get out of San Francisco. Uh, having had the work experience in Taiwan, I, I knew people there. And knew I really liked the environment. And then on a personal front, you know, I wasn't really fluent in any second language. Uh, you know, I'd studied some French in high school, but never enough to really be uh, deeply conversational. So I said, you know, if I'm going to be getting out of San Francisco and going to Taiwan, which I know, I might as well spend my time in Taiwan trying to get my Chinese really, really good. So, uh, yeah, I thought that would just be a good kind of way to break things up and kind of figure out what I wanted to do next. And uh, while I was there in Taiwan, I... I did my application to uh, apply for the MPP program at Oxford. And once I was admitted, it was like, okay, so do my time studying language. And now I get to go get a master's degree at Oxford. So it can deepen my kind of interest in public policy and technology through that. So yeah, I'd say in general, that was a really uh, enjoyable time in my life just because I was pursuing my interests and uh, it led to some interesting opportunities down the road. So, so really taking it step by step and, and trying new things along the way that, that interested you? Always. Yeah, I think uh, be open to new things. That's, uh, that's always sound advice, I would say. Don't, don't shy away from things that you don't understand because uh, when you're uncomfortable, it means you're growing. Ryan, for people who are interested in reaching out to you, uh, maybe catching up for a cup of coffee with you at some point uh, post-COVID, what would be the best point of contact? Uh, yeah, you can just find me on LinkedIn. If you search for me on LinkedIn, you'll, you'll probably find me. I have a pretty distinct last name. So uh, yeah, just uh, reach out there, send me a message, and uh, we're in the same city. We can meet up. Ryan, it was a pleasure having you on Geeks of the Valley, and thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having me.